Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. General Stanley McChrystal. This is the guy who, first off, he's a retired U.S. Army general. He led our command in Afghanistan, in the OOs. I mean, he's been heavily involved in the military for most of his career. Then after he retired as a general, he was on the board of Deutsche Bank and other companies. He's taken a lot of risks. He's risked his life. He's been responsible for, you know, decision, life and death decisions for many people. And so he wrote a book called Risk, A User's Guide, which from the guy who probably has taken more risks than just about anyone else on the planet, I wanted to read it, and there's so many stories ranging from his stories in Afghanistan to stories about Martin Luther King to stories about the the financial crisis, COVID, the Civil War, the French and Indian War. Lots of, of great stories and a really solid methodology about how to think about risk, which is so important for entrepreneurs and investors. And I find most entrepreneurs I know fail Not because they didn't have a good idea, but because they didn't take into account all the risks. And the risks are always more than you think. As Mike Tyson says, uh, you could prepare all you want for a fight, but it's all out the window once you get hit in the face. Well, General McChrystal's been hit in the face and he's been able to persevere through that. And I wanted to learn how for myself. So uh, in part one, we talk mostly about his book and the different stories and, and what is risk and why people don't pay attention to it and how and how to exercise your risk muscle. And then in part two of this, which is also downloaded today, we talk about what the heck is going on in Afghanistan and the rest of the world right now and what risks are in front of us. Risk, a user's guide. I love the title. I love the subtitle. And I think risk is something that most individuals and organizations do not really take into account as much as they should. And we've seen examples of this recently with Afghanistan, COVID. And I love how you not only talk about the big examples that you've experienced, particularly, you know, in combat and with COVID and so on, but you have all of these interesting examples, like the story of Martin Luther King writing a letter while he's in prison to the white clergyman. Right. Uh, and and it's a you look at risk in a very nuanced way that the risks we all assume are there. The obvious risks are not always the risks that are actually the things we're risking. And the, the Martin Luther King example was a great one. But but tell me why you wrote this book. Yeah, because I had spent, you know, a career dealing with risk and we had risk analysis guides and checklists and calculations before operations and things like that. And then I realized in reality, it was almost all finally judged based on intuition. 
we really, we pretended we understood risk and we didn't. And we also tended to look out. We thought of risk as something coming from somewhere else. We very rarely stood in the mirror and said, the risk is inside us. It's the fact, it's not that the pitcher's got five different pitches, it's the fact we're not very good hitters. And so that's what so, so right, and you mentioned that that I love how you you bring in baseball in in the book. Essentially, every pitch is a risk. It's a risk that you're going to miss it. And there's so many different types of pitches, and you have a matter of seconds. The ball is coming at you 100 miles an hour. It's 55 feet away. How does the brain calculate all the potential risks? It almost has to be instinctive. And yet, uh, let me ask you, like, and we'll get into specific examples, but. Do you think practicing risk, even if you're wrong, builds the instinct? So, so it's still worthwhile to practice for the different risks you think are there, even if those risks are not, uh, even if different risks will occur. Oh, I think it's absolutely fundamental. I've read that you started 20 companies, failed 17 times. Yes. You probably learned more from the 17 than you did from the three. Absolutely. In fact, you know, people tell me that. Uh, entrepreneurs are risk takers. And I say, no, that's not really true. Entrepreneurs, they're in almost 99% of the job is to reduce risk. We all know that if you, if it works out, you'll make money, but if you, but, but in order for it to work out all day long, every day, you have to reduce risk and you, the risk is coming at you from every side, as you point out in the book. You got to get good at it. Sometimes it takes repetition. Sometimes it takes experience. Often it takes intentionality. It's understanding how you and your organization get better at dealing with the things which are almost fundamentally unpredictable. So tell me, tell me a time, like just to get specific, like tell me a time in Afghanistan where you thought you had assessed all the risks and boom, maybe literally something happened and a risk that you totally did not take into account and it kind of overcame your, your preparation. Yeah. You, you take an operation and most of our operations would go in on helicopters. Not all of them would go in on helicopters. And so the obvious thing is to plan for when the helicopters break or when a helicopter crashes or when a helicopter shot down. So you have contingency plans for all of that sort of thing. You don't, I remember we did an operation in Iraq, and that's a desert country, at least we think of it that way. We landed, we stormed off the back of the helicopter and I was with the group and we ended up waist deep in a swamp. Hmm. I didn't even know there were swamps in Iraq. And you know, so here I am thinking, now how did this happen? Suddenly the helicopters fly away. We are literally mired in a swamp. And we're saying, now we didn't predict this one. So what are we gonna do next? And there, there's so many different permutations of that. And the difference is if you've got people who are problem solvers, not risk takers, I, I kind of hate that term, but people who have an ability to start to work on a problem as soon as it arises, not to be mesmerized by it, not to be shocked into, you know, uh, just no action, but people who just start navigating from where they are fixing the problem, however it has evolved and moving forward. That's, that is in fact, in my mind, the difference between really effective organizations and ones that struggle. And, and we're speaking about organizations and you speak about organizations in 
the book, but even on an individual level, this occurs to some extent. Like we, you know, and you, you talk about tobacco smoking. We all know uh, uh, smoking kills or, or could, you know, have bad effects on your health, very bad effects on your health, but somehow people still take that risk on a, on a personal level. We don't seem to manage risk the same way we do on an, on an organizational level. What, why do you think that is? <laughs> the shorter answer is maybe we're not that smart. Um, I believe that, you know, as I say in the, the book, the greatest risk to us is us. And I think that's absolutely true on an individual level and on a collective level in organizations. And partly it's because we wish away certain risks because they're inconvenient or they are uh, different from the things we want to do. So the tobacco was a great case. All they had to do was to give people who wanted to smoke a little bit of daylight by saying, you know, smoking probably causes cancer, but it might not. We're still studying it. And people saw that bit of daylight and they said, aha, it might not. And therefore they smoke away saying, you know, it might not. I think the same thing is true with uh, you know, people on decisions on their health or wearing a, a helmet when they ride a motorcycle. It's fundamentally ridiculous to take that risk, but everybody does a rationalization that says, well, it's either not going to happen to me or it's low enough that, you know, I'm just not going to worry too much about it. And, and those things are, are fatal. And so, you know, it's interesting because obviously the risks you took in the army and particularly in combat situations are life and death risks. And when you're in combat at, and, and, and missiles and guns are being fired and so on, death is going to occur inevitably. And I'm wondering if you ever wondered if that level of risk is worth it. Like you joined, the army has been your whole life until you retired your whole family, your father, your father's father, your wife's father, everybody you knew practically growing up had been a soldier. At what point did you, did you ever question, is this risk too much? Am I taking the risk not only of my own life, but of other people's lives seriously? Yeah, I'll answer it humorously than, than uh, seriously. Because uh, this is a humorous moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, risk to yourself when you're in the officer's club or you're at home bragging to your family, you know, no worry. You never think about those, you never question those risks until they are right in front of you. And then you start to wonder, well, maybe I should have gone into banking or maybe maybe something else would be a, a better idea. But But generally you get over those. It's the organizational risks that are, really, really interesting to me. And I, I give you a story that's a bit large and it's it's pretty pertinent for right now. When I took command in Afghanistan in 2009, there was this idea among certain people, many of them back in the United States, some in the force that said, we've got to take the gloves off. We're not defeating the Taliban because we're doing this too soft. We're not using enough firepower. We're not using enough military force. And on one hand, you get it, and they would argue to me, we're putting the force at risk if we don't use enough firepower. My response was, the real risk to our mission and ultimately to our force is losing the support of the Afghan population, making them hate us and not believe in us. And the way we do that is by using too much firepower. 
by, by being cavalier, by, by destroying their homes, by killing civilians inadvertently, but because we are, we are very unconstrained in our use of it. So interestingly, to take on the much greater risk of losing the war, I asked the force to take on a smaller, more tactical risk to themselves because that was the only route I felt possible to lead us to a good outcome. And so it was difficult for some people to get their minds around. Well, what was I, the smaller tactical risk you asked uh, your people to take? Well, for example, there would be times when I asked them not to use overwhelming firepower. An organization would be moving and they would take fire from the Taliban from inside a compound, a house. They were allowed under the law of armed conflict to level the house. They could bring artillery, air power, they could level the house and they would be within their legal rights. The problem was the Taliban would go into this house, they'd shoot out of it, Often they'd then leave, there'd be a family in the house, you'd level the house, sometimes with a family in, but at a minimum, you destroy the house. And so you're not going to win the support of the Afghan people by leveling their house, even though you were falling in line with the laws of armed conflict. So what I asked the force to do, I said, if you're in a position where you can't break contact, you have to do that to survive, then it's your right and your responsibility to protect your force. But if you're far enough away, well, you don't have to do that. You can back off a little bit. We can solve the problem another way. Let's keep our eye on what the big prize is. The big prize is achieving the outcome we want, which means we've got to get the support of the Afghan people. So that means you, you take a little bit more risk to yourself in the moment because we have to do what's going to get us the long-term payoff, which is winning the support of the Afghan people. And that's tough for some people to connect the dots on. But it's but it's essential. You know, it, it's very interesting because there's always and you point this out in your book very well. And 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 there's always multiple risks at work, sometimes conflicting with each other. So you you give an example of an airline. You call it uh, you know it's an imaginary example. You call it Fly VA. It's an air uh, an imaginary airline in in Virginia. And uh, you know there was a question. I think it was what. Um, the, um, the finance team wants to have cheaper food. The customer service team doesn't want to take the risk of upsetting the customers. And of course, the finance team doesn't want to take the risk of losing money. And how, in general, and you give a process for going through this, but in general, it's a very complicated risk to to judge which side to take. What, what's just Maybe outline the process you describe in your book of how one would decide uh, which competing risk you should pay attention to. Because right. then, and then it's related to those risks in Afghanistan in a much bigger way. Yeah, it absolutely is because there are always, almost always gonna be different perspectives on an issue and the question of what is most risky to the organization. You described the, the example we use of an airline. And so in this case, the finance people may say it will be risky to us, for example, losing our position in the market uh, by having our costs too high, losing support of shareholders or investors, by not curbing costs. And yet the customer experience people say, in the long run, if we lose customers, that's gonna be more detrimental. It's very, very similar. Um, and so the key is getting what we call uh, 
risk perspectives. It's bringing different, aligning different parts of the organization on the problem so that you appreciate that there are multiple perspectives. You get the different players in the room and you say, okay, this is the issue. And the different parts of it who come at it from different angles table their particular issue. And then you get at the end of the day, you got to make a decision. It's very rarely mathematical. It's often uh, experience and intuition. But if you're not informed about the puts and takes with it, for example, we talk about technology. We talk about a company bringing in automated software that runs its telephone answering, its customer service entity. And we say, well, it's so much cheaper. It doesn't need training. It doesn't need all these things. But then you and I know that when we call one of those and we're told to put on hold, like we wait for this long recorded thing, we get angry. And sometimes we take our business elsewhere. And so it's understanding that the risk is not always straightforward and two-dimensional in front of you. It often has depth and roots. And we got to understand that. We got to come at it in a, in a holistic way. Right. And so it, like, even though there's a process in place for basically organizing an organization to pay, to pay attention to risk and you, you describe, you know, your, your, the, your risk immune system, uh, an organization needs communicate communication, narrative, structure, uh, technology, diversity, and, and there's, it's, it's very, uh, detailed and concise how you think an organization should, uh, structure itself around risk. And yet at the end of the day, also, it takes just a lot of experience and intuition and kind of pattern recognition that this is the sort of risk that works in this situation. You know, you were a soldier for many years, so you were able to assess risks very well in, in, you know, these combat situations, whereas someone who just entering in might not be able to do as well, even if they have the same structure. So let's say I understand your, your structure you know, detect, assess, respond, learn, but I don't have the experience. How can I make up for that in, in a high stakes situation? Yeah, it's gotta be a concerted effort to do that. The first thing I'd say is we tend to be fixated on external threats. We tend to wanna to look outside and say, what's gonna get us? Business, rising interest rates, competition, et cetera. And so we're always scanning the horizon for those things. And we're wondering where it's gonna come from, how bad it's gonna be. We're waiting for the next pandemic. And the one thing I can guarantee everybody is after next year, there'll never be another COVID-19. I, I can also guarantee people there'll be another pandemic. It will just be different. And so they're focused out looking for the last thing, sort of the Maginot line that the French created between the First and Second World War because they were trying to solve last war's problem. So what I think organizations have got to do is say, what makes us the best problem solvers? What makes us the most resilient, sort of no matter what happens? And to me, that means you've got to look at these 10 factors, which you listed uh, really well there. You're not going to get all of them perfect, but it's almost like strengthening your body, making yourself healthier, making yourself more capable, and in some cases, confident. Quick story, when, when I was young in special operations, we were in love with perfectly choreographed missions. And you've seen them on movies. The commandos land, everybody knows exactly where to go. They open this exactly the same way. People throw the, and people catch it. And we like to plan and rehearse those. And in rehearsals, you could get it down to where it was extraordinarily impressive. 
But in the real op, it never, ever worked because something happens and then everything started to go to hell. And so what we changed to is we changed to focusing on the special operators and creating a bunch of people that would go in with a general plan of what they were going to do, an appreciation, but then the idea that they would automatically adapt in the moment and building in them the confidence in themselves and in the relationship with the other people that they would flow almost like water around a problem. And that was a very different approach and it built not only their effectiveness, but it started to build their confidence in a different way. Because in the older days, if you didn't have plenty of time to plan in exquisite detail and to rehearse it perfectly, people were hesitant to do something. And we started to put them in a problem, them knowing, hey, we can pretty much handle anything within reason. And they would go forward and be vastly more effective. And so was there ever a time where, like you mentioned this, the story where you, you landed in Iraq and you landed in, in a swamp, but were there, was there ever a time you were scared that this time you were in over your head, this time the risks were, were too much? Yeah, and, and a number of times. And the worst of that is being in command because I would send organizations on specific operations and I only went on a small number of them. And it's one thing when you're sharing the danger, but when you are back at the headquarters watching it on full motion video, live television, and it is very, very difficult. There's, there's two things. One, you feel responsible and two, you feel guilty. We had an operation one day where we had put entities out west of uh, Baghdad and it gotten very, very difficult in 2006. And in the process of this, a helicopter got shot down, then an F-16 got downed. We put Rangers on the ground to solve that and we sent out uh, to what we call little bird helicopters, small Hughes helicopters that were set up as gunships, which you tried not to use in daylight because they lost much of their advantage. But this was a daylight fight and, and we had to fight it. So we're in the middle of this fight. And at that moment, because of the Al Qaeda strength there, they had air defenses and they had ground forces. I wasn't confident we could solve the problem. And when you can't solve the problem, of course, the the challenge might be getting your people out. And so at one point we've got these elements on and then one of the little birds gets shot down. And now half your close air support is gone and you've just lost a pilot that you, you know, obviously feel very deeply about it. Well, that pilot turned out to be, he survived the crash, interestingly enough. He got picked up by another helicopter, got taken back to the headquarters and against regulations, because you're supposed to go for a medical checkup, he went to the flight line, got another helicopter, and flew back to the fight. Meanwhile, the first helicopter pilot ran out of ammunition rockets, so he landed at the downed airplane, got out of his own helicopter, single pilot aircraft, walked over, took the rockets that were on the downed aircraft, put them in his aircraft, all under ground fire, because this is all in a very open area, takes off and keeps in the fight. And you're watching all this and you have limited things you can do about it. You've got limited interactions, don't have other forces available in a short amount of time. So you're trying to deal with emerging risks, but you're pretty much down to what the force has on the ground with them in the near term.
Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything 
than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Nobody knows what's going to happen before you start a business. You have an idea... Right. A, you don't know if the idea is good. B, you don't really know who your customers are until customers appear. C, you don't know how big the company will grow until it grows. And then you don't know what risks will happen with growth until the growth is already there and bad things are happening. And it's the same thing here. Like you mentioned the, the helicopter pilot who went down and rather than following the rules to go for a medical checkup, he took out another helicopter and what strikes me there is there's, there's, and you mentioned this several times in the book, there's, there's a, a local risk and there's bigger picture risk. So he, t he assessed his local risk. He just wanted to get out and get back into the fight. But maybe that helicopter was not in the air for a reason, or maybe it was being left aside for some other pilot to arrive, or maybe he didn't want to have that much firepower out there. But that, he was taking, a, he decided to deal with his local risks rather than the macro risk that there might be a bigger picture for that extra helicopter or for him going for a medical checkup or whatever. And you mentioned this in the context of a civil war general who found a better position for his force, but put maybe the union army at risk at, at Gettysburg. And again, it seems like dealing with these different types of risks, that's the, that's the skill. Yeah. And, and it's not strictly mathematical. Because the pilot that got the other helicopter, he understood the fight he was in and a little bit about the bigger fight. But you're right. There could have been ramifications of him taking off, going down there and doing that. I'm glad he did. But the reality is, if people don't understand the context, the general you mentioned in the Civil War, General Dan Sickles, you know, is a politician turned general officer. He was the first man in the United States, he'd killed his wife's lover, to get off on temporary insanity. So he was a character, but the, he was put in a defensive line by General Meade, and it was along Cemetery Ridge, and then he decided to move his own corps forward about a mile to a better place for him. It was better for his corps, but it was potentially disastrous 
for the Union Army. So he made a tactically adept decision that taken in the broader context was terrible decision. And so this is where there's art. It's not straight science. Sometimes you want that person on the ground to use that initiative and to do exactly what seems right to them, but you need to empower them with communication and what we call shared consciousness so that they're armed with the context so that when they try to, to take an action, they at least have some appreciation for the ramifications on everything else. It's hard to, to predict all of them, but the reality is you're trying to get that balance. You don't want a brittle, uh, inflexible organization, but at the same time, people have to know that everything they do has second and third order, order impacts on the larger picture. And, and this is not to downplay any methodology, particularly the methodology in your book. It's like you mentioned with you know working out and keeping your body healthy. You When you lift weights in a gym, you're not doing it so that if you run into some weights in the street, you could lift them. You're doing it to build your overall strength and health. So you're ready for any, you know, situation that, that requires strength. And just in general, you're, if, as your muscles grow, your, your body gets healthier. So it's good. And so essentially studying all these examples and you study a wide variety of examples. You really kind of look at the nuances of, of risk. This is what builds the risk immune system as opposed to any one specific process. That's exactly right. So it's not that the study of risk hasn't been good and people haven't done some extraordinary models on how to model certain risks so you can do that. What I'm saying is that's good. You know, knock yourself out, spend a lot of time on them. At the end of the day, it's a more generalist thing. The entrepreneur who does well, in my opinion, is someone who's a bit of a generalist because they are flexible. They go at a problem, but then they find the problem's not what they thought it was. They sidestep, they work, they back up, they do something differently. It's a series of things that they do as opposed to a single, very specific or narrow skill. Well, well, and speaking of the, the mathematical approach, look at the 2008 <laughs> financial crisis. Uh, you know, you had hedge fund managers buying up loads of derivatives and real estate because mathematically real estate had never gone down a certain percentage, but they didn't take into account that, you know, starting with, you know, laws made during the Clinton years, there were, you know, these subprime, more and more of these subprime loans being collateralized into these derivatives. There was no way to really mathematically assess. They were using, they didn't, but they didn't. And you refer to cognitive biases somehow or other, these very incredibly intelligent people who were very successful didn't realize they had maybe perhaps confirmation bias thinking that, oh, real estate never goes down. Like, what do you think happened happened there for, for those specific hedge fund managers? Yeah, I think it went on several levels and I was fascinated by that. The first is they were incentivized to maximize return. So it was sort of like staying in a burning house to get the last valuables out of it. If you're very, very incentivized, You'll, you'll keep doing that sometimes beyond the time when it uh, makes a lot of sense. The second is they, they did moral licensing. And for people who aren't familiar with that term, it's basically saying that someone else is responsible for the risk here. Mm. And so I will assume that the chief risk officer of my bank or my investment firm is watching over risk. So I'm going to operate. And unless somebody tells me to stop, you know, I think we're good to go. 
And then there's a herd mentality as well. Everybody else is doing it, so it must not be that risky. You know, if all the people in your neighborhood aren't getting vaccinated for COVID, you commit yourself, well, all right, it must be okay, even though in the grander scheme, there's other data. So I think that people operate what ultimately is illogical, but it, but you can see the dynamics to that. And then, of course, they didn't understand either. They did not understand the relationship of CDOs and synthetic CDOs. And a lot of them didn't want to understand, you know, all of the levels of risk that were built into those different uh, vehicles. You know, I think we do the same thing now. We, we have very similar risks that come up and we find ways to think that we have accounted for them. You can put together a mathematical risk model. I was on the board of Deutsche Bank USA and wonderful people working really hard and there are all these mathematical models to do risk and for rising interest rates and different things that, that guide you to liquidity. But at the end of the day, that's not what was really a threat to the bank. What was a threat to the bank was reputational risk, loss of key talent, things like that. And they're harder to wrestle with. But these other models can become hypnotic. And you think if I'm doing the model and the model comes out okay, we're gonna be fine. And so, I think that many of our organizations, we start to lull ourselves into a, a sense that we've got risk covered because we put somebody responsible in the organization or we have a model, a checklist that says if we do the following, there's not great risk. Right. And so how can, you know, an organization is made up of individuals and when, when you lead, you're not leading a unit of men, you're leading men, you know, or women, and, and each one of them has to be good at, at risk assessment. How can someone listening to this basically exercise their risk muscle? And again, you have a, a methodology, you have, you know, it's, you say detect, assess, respond, learn, and then you have to make sure, you know, you're, you're exchanging good information. That's your communication all the way down to leadership, which in this case might mean just leadership over yourself, being able to adapt and change and, and so on. But how can, how can I practice my risk skills, get better at risk management and reducing risk in my life without being too conservative in my life either? Yeah. No, I think the first thing to do is develop your ability just to respond to things. You know, it's almost like your body exercising muscles so that you're healthy, not so you can pick up a certain weight, but so that you are healthy. And I think organizations are that way. Find out where your biases are. Find out where your uh, blind spots are. Try to use diverse perspectives to help with that. Put in place some habits where you solve problems both individually and as an organization so that you develop the skill to do those kinds of things. Then, of course, communications that the, the underpinning of all this communicate a lot. And finally, inform the organization. Get them as smart as you can on what's happening. And then instead of one person trying to see the risks out there, you've got an entire organization with sensors out and a ton of brains, all with an understanding of how your business works and the kinds of things that could be risk. Then suddenly you've got these collectors that can inform the whole. And then of course, the whole is smarter than the individual. Overcoming biases though, that's very difficult because, you know, Daniel Kahneman, who, who for originally wrote about all the cognitive biases we have, 
he takes it to extreme where he says it's impossible to recognize what biases you have and overcome them. You don't know if it's always just confirmation bias or in-group bias or, or whatever. Like, how can I, so even if I know that I'm biased in some way, how can I f f overcome that? Yeah, I think the best you can do is be aware that you are biased. You know, we can't, I don't think you can do a lot about biases. You can inform yourself and hopefully you'll think more about it. But the reality is both an individual and an organization accept the reality that you have a number of biases built in. Start to try to identify them. Start to weaken them through bringing diverse perspectives, people in the room who will go, wait a minute, you know, I see this very differently. Avoid the groupthink that is so dangerous. And then when you do things, if you are aware of your biases, then you can move forward with a little bit more caution, a little bit more awareness. But again, I don't think you wipe the whiteboard clean on biases. I just don't, I think they're too ingrained inside us. Right, and you mentioned diversity as a, a key trait of building your risk immune system. And by that, you mean having voices from completely different backgrounds, hopefully voices that are honest with you and they could protect, like, like I always see my friends starting businesses and I think to myself, man, that is a lousy idea for a business, but I'm not really forth. I don't want to hurt their feeling. I'm not always forthcoming. Like that's a bad idea. Don't do it. Like they want to do it. So, so when I always ask myself, am I falling prey to the same thing? You have to get really honest voices around you. And I guess you have to commute, as you mentioned with communication and technology, you have to use these resources to get as much information as possible and almost not try to not judge it in some way. Yeah, I want to make a point here because I think sometimes listeners get confused. We use the term diversity and we almost equate it with a quality of opportunity. We say we should have different genders, different races, different backgrounds together because it's fair to do that. And I do believe it's fair to do that, but that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is diversity so that you get the different voices, you get the different experiences and whatnot. It's possible that everybody that ends up in the room is the same color, the same age, same sex, same everything. But if they have very diverse perspectives, you can achieve diversity. And so I believe equality is a goal we do, but diversity for organizations is a survival requirement. You have got to plug your blind spots because we have them. We found in special operating forces, we just in the early years when I grew up in it, just about everybody looked like me. Just about everybody thought pretty much like me. And we were very happy with that because we were simpatico. But when we got in the war and suddenly we had the great risk of losing, then suddenly the meritocracy came out. And suddenly we had people who didn't look like us who could contribute and we needed them. So suddenly young women, older men, all the different demographics were brought in, not because we decided to be inclusive, but we could, because we decided not to lose. That's, I just think it's key. We, we make sure we don't confuse one for the other. You mentioned in the book that you weren't necessarily on the same page as leadership in terms of the invasion of Iraq. When do you start to assess as a soldier and as a, as a general that the risk for the country might, might not be being taken into account for the local risk of 
invading and conquering, you know, a country like Iraq? Or, or is, is this, that your role at all? No, this is an extraordinary danger for a country or an organization, a business, whatever. How often do we see, you know, a tragic collapse of a business and you find out that not only did the people at the top do something that was wrong, but you had a whole bunch of people who had great misgivings about it. Good, honorable, smart people, but they didn't speak up. And I will tell you what I think happened in the, the uh, lead up to the Iraq war. There were a number of people, me included, who didn't think it made a lot of sense. We didn't think Saddam Hussein was a good guy, but we didn't think at that particular time that an invasion was warranted or in the best interest of the United States. But you rationalize. First, we all want to be part of the team and we want to be loyal and we want to be accepted. And so speaking up gets a little bit harder just from that standpoint. The second is you're not in all the meetings. I was a two-star general, which is pretty senior, but it's not a three or four-star general. So I'm not in the, the very small conclaves that decide things. And so the rationalization that people at my level made, well, they must be making a good decision on more information than I have. So they, they're in there, they got more, so they are doing this. So there must be better reasons than I know to do this. And then in an organization with fairly well-known hierarchy, you wear your rank on your clothing, you use titles and whatnot, there's less natural uh, likelihood that people are gonna question people above them openly, you know, and, and really say, now, wait a minute, Mr. Four-Star General, Mr. Secretary, Mr. President, explain to me why you're gonna do this. That's just not a dynamic that, that happens. And so the great danger there is so much of the wisdom in the organization is down inside it and so much of the perspectives. And so if the organization starts to go off in a way that's either immoral and wrong or less likely just a mistake, a well-intentioned mistake, what happens is you don't have that dialogue, you don't have the communication, you don't have the dynamic that allows you to reduce the risk. And then after the fact, what happens is people go, wow, I sort of knew that was a bad idea. Well, it's not helpful after the fact, after the failure. And so how do we get a dynamic created inside our organizations that prevents that? We throw a couple of solutions that, that help with that, but I would tell people it's one of the most dangerous things that I've seen. Well, and, and, you know, to your point earlier about, uh, Afghanistan, and we'll, we'll talk in a few minutes about the recent events, but you're, 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 you're mentioning of, you know, you want the population of Afghanistan to be in favor of what we were doing there. That's, that's a risk that is fairly new in the sense that take world war two as, as another example, we didn't really care what the people of Germany or Japan thought of us. We just wanted to win that war. So what makes a, a war like Afghanistan different than a war like World War II or a war like Iraq different from a war like World War II? Sure, e everything. Um, the first is understand the problem that you are facing. In World War II, we had Nazi Germany and we had Imperial Japan. Both of them had very unified populations supporting their government, misguided as the, the two regimes were. And so to defeat those nations, you essentially had to destroy their military capability, then overturn their government, and then over time you could 
do what you need to with the population to change their thinking. But you weren't going to convince the population to overthrow uh, uh, Hitler or Tojo. So that was a pretty straightforward calculation. To win, you must do this. If you step back in Iraq or Afghanistan, ultimately, the outcome is decided by the opinion of the people. In any insurgency, the people decide who they're going to support, either the government or the insurgents. Or in Iraq, it was multiple directions. But you're trying to get the, the opinion of the populace to, they don't have to love the winner. They'd simply have to come up with a calculation that says, it is in my best interest for this side to prevail. And you want that to be the government. And therefore, you want the government to be as legitimate as it can for the people. And you need to convince the people that, that that's the direction they want to go. All against the tensions of the insurgents who are trying to pull them the other way, delegitimize the government. So that's what makes it so tough. The insurgent only needs to create chaos and doubt and uncertainty and delegitimacy in the government to win. They don't have to govern. Now the Taliban will have to govern. But up until that, it's, it's much easier. They just have to create the negative side. We, at the same time, have got to do two things. We've got to create security for the population, and we've got to create a number of things that convince the population that they want to go with their government. They want to support their government, sometimes at great risk because the insurgents will threaten them at night and whatnot. So it's, it can be really complicated, and it makes it incredibly painful. The first reaction of the insurgent or the counterterrorist is to lash out at the insurgents or the terrorist and go kill them. And, and that, that feels good, to be honest. If you see a problem and you go kill that problem, you feel good. But in the case of an insurgency, it's often a mistake because every insurgent killed has a brother, or a father, or a sister, or a mother, who then often is impacted by the fact that they didn't think their son should be in the insurgency, but now they're mad at you because you killed their son. And so you can make your problem worse doing what you think you can do to solve your problem. And that gets to airstrikes and the use of artillery. Every time you create collateral damage, every time a home gets destroyed, it's somebody's house. Every time an innocent civilian is killed, it's somebody's relative. And so very rarely will the survivors say, well, I knew they were trying to do the greater good, so it's okay if you kill my brother. I, I got it. Um, and so that's where it's so complicated to understand where the real risk is. Right. So, so like take Japan as an example. I mean, we dropped two atomic bombs on Japan yeah. and it seems like they did think later, oh, okay, that's just war. The U S yeah. is okay. They're going to be our biggest customers for our little electronic products. Like how did, but, but you're right in the middle East, it seems very different. Like it seems we can't make headway there. Uh, again, what was different about Japan and yeah. then, then what's happening now? Japan was a very interesting case because there was this tremendous loyalty to the emperor and the idea of the national pride of Japan. Had we done a ground invasion of Japan, estimates were a million US casualties. And it was based upon the fact that so much of the Japanese population would fight because that was their culture and their psychological moment. By, by dropping two atomic bombs, it sounded cruel, but it probably killed far fewer Japanese than would have, would have happened in a ground invasion. So then when 
U.S. occupying forces went in, Douglas MacArthur, in really one of his finest accomplishments, he went in and he understood that the Japanese revered the emperor. So he didn't come in as a conqueror to make the emperor, you know, our vassal. In fact, he, he gave the emperor a fair amount of ability to maintain his stature and respect. And the Japanese people deeply respected that. So it was a nuanced way of occupying Japan with a less heavy hand than, than we might have. But, but in both cases in World War II, there was a sort of a military finality. We were able to cr crush their military capacity. In like an insurgency, it's hard to do. So what risks do you think we did not take into account in Afghanistan where a, you know, 20 years later, we were still there, you know, 19 years later, we were still there. And now, you know, there's this additional risk where we always, you know, three presidents in a row, we were always saying we would pull out quickly. Now we pulled out quickly and somehow we took, we took a risk. We took a huge risk that somehow didn't really work out. What happened? Now you should download part two, where we talk about what just happened in Afghanistan, what's happening all over the world, and what risks do we have to watch for going forward. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one 844 Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.